If you're new here, by the way, my name is Matt Rawlings, one of the pastors here. We are glad to have you. It is a blessing and a privilege to be able to gather together with the people of the Lord who've been saved by His grace. This morning, we have a very special treat. We have a good friend who's been coming to our church for a little while now, the last few months. Um, he has originally graduated from Bob Jones University with a PhD. Then he went on to get a PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he studied under D.A. Carson and was mentored by him, went on to uh, BSTA, and then now is, is working as his research manager. So um, Andy Nacelli is D.A. Carson's research manager, and he is currently helping write the commentary portion of a new NIV study Bible that will be coming out, I think, in the next couple years, I will say, uh, 2014 is the goal at least. So uh, they're looking forward to that. But on top of all those impressive things, impressive credentials, Andy is a man who loves God. Andy is a man who loves God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul. And it's been a privilege to get to know Andy. Andy originally approached us to see what God was doing in his life. And now Andy will be pursuing in May to go move to uh, Minneapolis. And, and uh, I, I feel sorry for your wife. It is cold there. Um, I don't think she knows how cold it is, but uh, they're going to be moving to Minneapolis in May, but they're going to be in our church until then, and uh, where he is going to be a, a professor of New Testament studies, right, um, at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Um, we are really looking forward to him coming and preaching, giving us God's word this morning. Um, I love having gotten to know Andy better because he is just a guy who is humble. Who, he would never tell you those credentials. He's probably hating the fact that I told you all those things. Uh, just a moment ago, and um, he loves God, and he's passionate about God. So I am excited about him speaking to you so you can hear his heart for the Lord and for God's word. So can we please welcome Andy Nacelli this morning? Thank you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we prepare to examine this portion of scripture this morning Hebrews 12 3 to 17 would you please illumine our minds so that we understand these words you have revealed to us and would you please give us grace to live this out faithfully so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, a rock and our Redeemer. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Amen. Do you know who Louis Zamperini is? Anybody know who that is? Louis Zamperini? Most people know about him today because of a best-selling 2010 book written by Laura Hillenbrand titled Unbroken, A World War II Story of Survival, Resilience, and Redemption. How many of you have read that? Okay, maybe five or six. It's phenomenal. I read it a while back. My wife has been listening to it on audiobook this last week. She's almost done with it, and uh, so that's why it's on my mind. Ah, great book. Anyway, I, I, I bring him up because... Louis personified endurance. Let me tell you about him briefly. At first, 
He exemplified endurance through running. He became an Olympic track star at 19 years old. This is back in 1936. He was the youngest distance runner ever to make the U.S. Olympic team. And then he became a bombardier for America in World War II, and he was involved in a plane crash in the Pacific Ocean, and he was one of the few survivors of that plane crash. Then he drifted on a raft for 47 days, over 2,000 miles, while sharks circled it, and then landed at a place where the Japanese controlled the area. And he was a prisoner of war in several brutal Japanese internment camps for two and a half years, where he was beaten, enslaved, degraded, starved, and tortured. It's an amazing story. But I mention him, he's still alive, by the way. He's 96 years old. I mention him because he illustrates endurance in the face of extreme suffering. I don't know of another person alive today who's been through that. There probably are some. It's unbelievable. But he endured through that. And in our passage today, in Hebrews 12, that's what God calls Christians to do, is to endure in the face of extreme suffering. The Christian life is not easy. We saw last week in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 that the Christian life is like what? It's like running a race and not just a sprint. It's like running a marathon, a lifelong race. And as we run, we must endure and avoid sin, which is perilous, because following Jesus is costly. It is costly. But Jesus is worth it. And the author of Hebrews knows that, so he implores Christians to endure. So would you please take your Bibles. If you're not open already, go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and the text we're going to consider this morning is Hebrews 12, 3 to 17. So let's read that. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, look at verse 3. Some English translations begin verse 3 with the word for, F-O-R. That's an important little word because it logically connects verses 1 and 2 with the passage we just read. And the connection is very important. Let me show you why. Uh, Go back and look at verses 1 and 2 to refresh your memory. Uh, Verse verse 1 says, Therefore, and that word connects these first 17 verses with the previous chapter. So, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Four, verse three. What's the connection? Well, it's hard to see this in most English translations, but... In the Greek text of verses 1 and 2, there's just one main controlling exhortation. Matt mentioned it last week. Can you guess what it is? Do you remember? Verses 1 and 2, what's the main exhortation? Let us run. Okay? That's the main exhortation. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And, and verse 1 gives us a reason to do that. One reason we should be encouraged to run our race with endurance is that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's encouraging. Those people in chapter 11, that's encouraging. That's one reason to run with endurance. And then the rest of verses 1 and 2 give two ways to run the race with endurance. The first, by laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us. And the second is by looking to Jesus. Okay, you following me? So now, verse 3 begins, 4. There's a logical connection. Given that, what's going to happen next unpacks verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to 17 unpack how we should run the race with endurance. So verses 3 and 4, we run the race with endurance. How? By considering Jesus. You see the first words in verse 3. 4, consider him. Then second way is verses 5 to 13. We run the race with endurance by submitting to our Heavenly Father's loving discipline. And then there's a third way. How do we run the race with endurance? By striving for peace and holiness while alert about sin. Verses 14 to 17. And what's interesting, you look at those reasons. The the first reason, back in verse 1, by laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. That's mirrored in verses 14 to 17. The positive way. So verse 1 says, lay aside sin. Verse 14 says, positively, strive for peace and holiness and be alert about sin. See those, how they parallel? And then then verse uh, 2, 1 and 2, look to Jesus. And you see that again in verses 3 and 4. Consider Jesus. So we have parallels. Interesting. Okay, so those three points there for verses 3 to 17, that's our outline. As we follow verses 3 to 17 this morning, those are the, the, three, uh, the three ways that you endure. You run with endurance. So those will be our hooks as we work through the passage. And that's the title of the sermon, How to Run the Race with Endurance. How to Run the Race with Endurance. You can think of this as really part two to Matt's sermon last week on verses one and two, because verses one to 17 go together. Okay, so what is the first way that we should run our race with endurance? Number one, consider Jesus, verses three and four, or 
run your race with endurance by considering Jesus. Okay, let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Because remember, verse 2 says we should run our race with endurance by looking to Jesus. He endured the cross. And then verse 3 starts off with the command, consider him. He endured the ultimate suffering. The author is basically saying, hey, he's acknowledging your suffering, but he's saying consider what you're suffering to what Jesus suffered. Compare those sufferings. Compare them. And this isn't to minimize your own suffering, not in any way to minimize what you're enduring, but he's, he's asking you to compare them for a reason. Your suffering's real. It's not easy, but it's not the same. And remember, uh, the way that... W- we want to think about how we're suffering. We'll get there. But first, think about the author, the, the people the author is addressing here. Do you remember what kind of suffering they were enduring? Uh, think back to chapter 10. You might want to turn back there. Chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 36, uh, is a place where the author of Hebrews addresses people who have endured severe suffering. And he appeals to how they endured past suffering as he exhorts them to endure continued suffering. Okay, let me refresh your memory by reading those verses. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 36. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, that means they're Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Have any of you experienced these? Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. This is the kind of suffering most of us have never experienced. Uh, Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Anyone in here joyfully accepted the plundering of your property for the sake of Jesus' name? Probably not in America. It's possible, but not normally our experience in our context. Uh, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So that those are the people that, that this author is addressing. So here, in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, the author is saying, compare your suffering to Jesus' suffering. Jesus faced the ultimate suffering, and it ended in his death. He endured to the point of death, and you're still alive. Remember that. And look to Jesus as a means to endure. And what's the purpose of this? Look in verse 3. What's the purpose of this? Compare what you're enduring, you're enduring to what Jesus endured for this purpose so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, when you're suffering, what are you tempted to do? Grow weary. You're tempted to grow weary or faint-hearted. You're tempted to be emotionally weary, to be physically weary, weary in all sorts of ways. You're tempted to lose heart and even to give up. And this text says that considering Jesus is a God-ordained way, a means to stir you up not to grow weary, not to lose heart, not to give up. So when you're suffering, in whatever form that might take, consider Jesus. The martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, if we follow Jesus and look only to his righteousness, we're in his hands and under the protection of him and his Father. And if we're in communion with the Father, naught can harm us. God will help us in the hour of need, and he knows our needs. 
So texts like this, and they're all over Scripture, texts like this are in the Bible, not just for when you're going through suffering, severe suffering. They're for that too. They're also for when, uh, they're also to prepare you for when severe suffering comes. So if, if you're going through suffering, severe suffering or any sort of suffering right now, this text is for you. If, if you're not experiencing that right now, this text is for you. Because these kinds of texts need to transform your mind so that when suffering comes, you respond in the right way. So let this text transform your mind right now. Uh, even so, if, if, if this text applies to severe suffering, surely it applies to less severe suffering. That's an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. For example, um, if, if a man could pick up a piano, surely he could pick up a paper cup. You see that argument? Greater to the lesser. Right? So, if this passage applies to severe suffering, of course it applies to less severe suffering. And to some degree... That's the kind of stuff we deal with every day. Okay? So, uh, God custom builds our trials for us in many shapes and sizes. They can be a complex of pressures. You, may, you might be dealing with sickness uh, yourself or with loved ones. You might be dealing with the challenges of an aging body or financial pressures. Whatever. The list is endless. Um, the last few days, uh, this is, again, pressures are on a spectrum. So this isn't severe. Last few days, I have three little kids. Um, all five of us got sick at the same time. Um, uh, don't worry, I'm not breathing sickness on you. It's not that kind of sickness. Um, and uh, it's, it was not easy. Um, when I took my first college class, it was a correspondence course my senior year of high school. It's on psychology. Um, there's an illustration of how sleep deprivation inf- affects you. And they took a cat and put a cat on a flotation device in a pool. And the cat was terrified of water. And every time the cat wanted to sleep, it would relax. And a paw or a tail or part of its body would touch the water and it would flip out and be terrified. And it did that over and over and over. And they did a study on how sleep deprivation makes you go crazy. Well, that's how we felt the last few days. Um, uh, so if I'm not making sense, that's, that's probably why. Uh, but we could all tell stories of, to some degree... So on, some, on the spectrum of suffering, that's the kind of stuff we deal with every day. I don't know the man who was introduced this morning. That would probably be a more severe form of suffering from what I heard. Um, I'm sure we can all tell stories of more severe, less severe. But this is, this is life in, in God's world, God's fallen world. And we need to think through this suffering the way God tells us to think through it. So that's what this passage is doing. The first way to run our race with endurance is to consider Jesus. Whatever pressures you're feeling, don't give up, persevere, endure by looking to Jesus. All right? Think about what he endured for your sake. So that's, that's the first way we should run the race with endurance, by considering Jesus. Now verses 5 to 13 share the second way that we should run the race with endurance. Submit to your heavenly Father's loving discipline. That is, run your race with endurance by submitting to your heavenly Father's loving discipline. Let me set the stage and then 
back off for a second. We may suffer at the hands of evil people, evildoers. Verse 3 says that Jesus endured hostility from sinners. Is God in control of that? Yeah, God is ultimately in control of every hardship we experience. God is sovereign. And he doesn't merely respond. He's not just trying to make the best of bad situations. He ultimately ordains and controls the whole thing without himself being guilty of sin. And what the author does in this text is compare the unpleasant and painful situations that God ordains for us to the unpleasant and painful discipline that parents administer to their children. And that raises some pastoral issues I'd like to address, three of them. I'll do this briefly before we look through the text, verses 5 to 13. First issue, does this passage apply to how parents should discipline their children? Yes. This passage has several significant implications for how parents should discipline their children for their children's own good. And one thing I think is important is to clarify the terms punishment and discipline. Some people use those synonymously, uh, but I think it's important, it's helpful to clarify how they differ because it affects how we think about God's discipline of us. Okay? They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Uh, here, here's, here's one way to think of the distinction. One pastor writes, Discipline is corrective. It seeks to accomplish a change in the one being disciplined. Punishment is meted out in the simple interests of justice. So in bringing up children, parents should be disciplining them. In hanging a murderer, the civil magistrate is not disciplining, he's punishing. Now, we're sinners. And God has to punish someone for our sins. Has he done that already? So, would subsequent whatever we're experiencing be punishment? No, that's, that's discipline. He's already punished Jesus in our place. Very important distinction. Okay? So, when a parent disciplines their child, they're not punishing them. They're training them for their good. Verse 11 says that this kind of discipline always seems, what? Painful, rather than pleasant. But the implications for how parents should discipline their children are really secondary in this passage. So I'm going to just put that aside right now and focus on the text's main purpose. We should run the race with endurance by submitting to our Heavenly Father's loving discipline, His training us for our good. That's going to be our focus. All right. Second issue. How do we process the parenting metaphor? The parenting metaphor may trouble some of you, if you didn't grow up experiencing loving discipline from your father, perhaps your mom raised you uh, in a single-parent home. Perhaps your father basically ignored you or was so passive that he barely disciplined you. Or maybe he disciplined you, but he didn't lovingly discipline you. And then you read a passage like this, and it, it may not resonate with you. It, if that's the case for you, it's important that you not miss the point of this passage, because, even if it doesn't measure up with your experience. The point is that in general, a human father loves his children. And for that reason, he disciplines them 
Not flawlessly, but lovingly. And that's the point. Don't miss that point. Third issue. How do we process God's designing suffering for us? Now, Christians disagree on this. Um, but what I'm about to present is, um, I think, what your leadership believes and what most of you believe. And that's that God's in control of everything. Even our suffering. Now, this, this is complex because the analogy between parental discipline and God's discipline breaks down. Uh, the point of comparison is that earthly fathers and heavenly, our heavenly father love their children. And therefore, they do what's best for them as they train them, even when it's unpleasant and painful. God does that. Human fathers do that. Here's where the analogy breaks down, though. Uh, earthly fathers don't intentionally design for their children to experience extreme suffering and even death. We do everything we can to keep that away from our children. So that, it breaks down there. Uh, our Heavenly Father sometimes designs for His children to experience extreme suffering and even death. Martyrdom, sickness. So how do we, how do we process this? Well, this is a subset of what in theology is called the problem of evil. You heard that term before? The problem of evil? Basically, it's answering this question. How could a good God allow suffering and evil? Uh, it's probably the single most difficult theological question to address. And I'm going to give it like two minutes. So if I had more time to unpack this, here are some of the arguments I would establish in reply. God is not obligated to explain the problem of evil to anyone. God, not our sense of justice, but God is the standard for what he does. God ordains and causes evil, but he cannot be blamed for it. He's not sinful. He's not in any way culpable for sin. The logical problem of evil, including God's providence over everything, involves mystery, requiring that we maintain doctrinal tensions in proportion that they're in the Bible, affirming multiple truths at the same time, even when there's some tension that we can't explain. They don't contradict each other, but there's tension. And finally, God uses evil for a greater good. A lot of texts we could go through for that. Um, John Piper tweeted something. I'm quoting a tweet, but it, it's a good one. He, he tweeted something in 2009 that I still recall often. It's, it's really good. He says, God never does only one thing. And everything he does, he's doing thousands of things. Of these, we know perhaps half a dozen. God uses evil for a greater good. So the, the bottom line issue for us is whether we will trust God even when we don't have all the information. Will we trust God when we don't have all the answers to our questions? Do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that God is sovereign? What's the name of this church? Sovereign Grace Church. Um, yes, God is good. God is sovereign. And we can trust Him even when it hurts. So now, just addressing briefly those three questions, now let's look through the text, verses 5 to 13. The text begins by quoting the Old Testament in verses 5 and 6. It quotes Proverbs 3, 
11 and 12. So first, the author of Hebrews says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now he quotes that proverb. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So this is a reminder. He's reminding them this. Hey, God encourages us as a father addresses his son. Don't, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. In fact, you should be grateful for it. Why? Because God's discipline is of his children. He disciplines his children. And he does it because he loves them. And he disciplines only his children. And he disciplines all of his children. That's why. So then, verses 7 to 11, comment on that Old Testament quotation in verses 5 and 6. So verse 7 begins, it's for discipline that you have to endure. That could be translated, endure hardship as discipline. That's how some other translations render it. Endure, endure hardship as discipline. Endurance is part of your training as God's child. Now why should we endure hardship as discipline? Next phrase in verse 7. God is treating you as sons. This is how God treats his children. Would you have it any other way? These, these trying times that we experience are hard, but they should actually encourage us because they confirm that we are God's children. This is how God treats his children. We can take, take great comfort in knowing that, that as we receive these hard, hard times from God, ordained by God, that they're a sign of his love, his fatherly love that he's ordaining for us. Rest of verse 7. For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? In general, fathers don't exempt one of their children from discipline. Verse 8. If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In general, all children receive discipline from their father. So verse 9 further argues why we should submit to our Heavenly Father's discipline. Look at it. Besides this, we have, a, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Okay, so right here, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying, in general, we respect our earthly fathers for disciplining us. So surely, we should submit to our Heavenly Father when He disciplines us. You see, see the argument? And then, verse 10, he says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. What does that imply? As it seemed best to them. Well, it implies our human parents did the best they knew how, but they weren't infallible. Their perspective is limited. They're sinful. But God doesn't have a limited perspective, and he's not sinful. Our human parents made mistakes. God doesn't. God's motives and actions are always right. That's why verse 10 says, He disciplines us for our good. And it's always for our good. Every time, without exception, God's discipline is for our good. And it's right. 
And although discipline is unpleasant and painful, verse 11, it's worth it. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So no pain, no gain. Discipline trains us and it bears fruit. Righteousness. Now, the first word of verse 12 is therefore. What's the connection? So because you should endure hardship as discipline, several exhortations logically follow. That's why the word therefore is in verse 12. Because of those things we just saw about God's fatherly discipline. Therefore, verses 12 and 13. So this is going to extend the running metaphor. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So these, these drooping hands and these, these weak knees picture what? An exhausted runner. That's that running metaphor back in verse, verses 1 and 2. An exhausted runner. This is symbolizing a Christian who is spiritually and emotionally weary and depressed from running the Christian race. Any of you run marathons? Half marathons? Okay. Um, that's very difficult work. Uh, my, mom, my mom ran a half marathon for the first time last year. So last fall, her first and only probably, she, she's training for a marathon, and when she's getting up to the 8, 9, 10 mile runs to train, She's complaining that her knees hurt and her hip hurts. Uh, she pushed through it and she successfully completed the race. Uh, but she had to endure pain. Um, don't take this as an endorsement to push through pain if you're a runner. Okay, don't sue me for this. But my, my point is that she pushed through pain and as Christians in the Christian race, we need to push through pain. Okay. So uh, the exhortation of verse 13 then is to make straight paths for your feet. That's quoting Proverbs 4.26. Uh, in wisdom literature, the straight path refers to God's way of right living. Okay, so live rightly. And one commentator reflecting on verse 13 says, that reference to the lame, you see that? The lame in verse 13? That's an image of exhaustion or the crippling effect of spiritual discouragement. So running a race on an uneven path full of bumps and potholes is not only inconvenient but also dangerous especially for the person who's not in good physical condition to begin with. So that's the exhortation. When you experience suffering and hardship, don't despair. Don't despair. See your suffering and hardship as what God has ordained for you as part of his loving, fatherly care for your good so that you will bear the fruit of righteousness. That's the way we should think about God-ordained Suffering. So verses 3 and 4, to re review here, verses 3 and 4 share the first way that we should run the race with endurance, by considering Jesus. Verses 5 to 13, the second way, by submitting to your heavenly Father's discipline, loving discipline. And now verses 14 to 17 share the third and final way, strive for peace and holiness while alert about sin. That is, run your race with endurance by striving for peace and holiness while alert about sin. 
Now, these last four verses have two main commands. You'll see it in verse 14. Look at verse 14. The first command is, Strive for peace with everyone. Now, this recalls Romans 12.18. Maybe you have this memorized. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's a good one to memorize. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, why, why that exhortation here after what we just saw? How does that fit? Well, this is hard to do when we're suffering because of another person. We may be tempted to gossip, to seek revenge, to seek justice, to become bitter. But God tells us, Strive for peace with everyone as you run your race. There are two commands. The first one is strive for peace with everyone. The second is strive for something else. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So strive for peace with all. Strive for holiness. Now, it's helpful to to step back sometimes and just ask how certain concepts fit in the Bible's storyline. How does, how does holiness fit in the Bible's storyline? Well, the holy God, which we, whom we sang about this morning, the holy God created holy people, Adam and Eve, who became unholy. That's the fall in Genesis 3. And then that holy God later selected a holy people, Israel, to be his holy people. And were they holy? No, they repeatedly failed to be holy. But then Jesus, who embodies holiness, made his people holy. Remember Hebrews 10.10? We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And there's a text coming up in the preaching schedule, Hebrews 13.12. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. For what purpose? To make his people holy, to make the people holy through his own blood. Therefore, Christians right now are holy, definitively, positionally. Jesus has made us holy. We're saints. And we must strive to live in a holy manner. Both, right now. So we are holy and we need to be holy at the same time. And someday we will be made holy definitively. No more sin. So right now in the storyline, our concern is verse 14. To pursue holiness. To strive for holiness. God commands us right now to be holy. So as we run this race with endurance, we want to be striving for peace with everyone and for holiness. You follow that? Now, verse 15 introduces three parallel warnings. These warnings are really subsets of the command to strive. So strive for peace with everyone, strive for holiness, and warning one, warning two, warning three. That's how it works. So, warning one, basically saying, see to it that we don't sin in three different ways. The first way, we need to be careful, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's verse 15. So, strive for peace with all men, strive for holiness, warning, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Now, how does that fit in the flow? Well, when we're experiencing intense suffering we can be tempted to turn away from the grace of God. We can be tempted to question God's ways. 
And you say, don't fail that. You need that grace. Don't fail to obtain that grace. One commentator observes, this the state of missing the grace of God is really the same as that warned against earlier in the book, in chapter 4, verse 1, 6, 4 to 6, 10, 26 to 31, those warning passages you've seen already. Namely, the state of rejecting the gospel and missing the forgiveness offered by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. Warning. Now, warning two. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Remember, this, this kind of connects to that first strive. Strive for peace with everyone. If you don't do that, you have a big problem here. You might become bitter. We can be tempted to become bitter and defile others even in the midst of our suffering. So God warns us to be alert about that. The ESV, you might note, puts quotation marks around the words root of bitterness. You see that in your text? You have quotation marks around root of bitterness. Why is that? Well, it's because this alludes to Deuteronomy 29.18. You might have a little footnote in your Bible where it says Deuteronomy 29.18. I'll read that to you. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And in the context of Deuteronomy... He's warning the covenant community as a whole. And here in Hebrews, he's not just writing to individual Christians. He's writing to the group. And he's saying, see to it, not just for yourself, but for those around you. There's, there's a responsibility that we have for our fellow brothers and sisters. You're not just looking out for yourself not to sin in these ways. You're looking out for others. It's, it's communal. It's, it's a community command here. Exhortation, warning. So, why is that? Well, bitterness does not affect just you. It defiles the group. Warning number three. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. That's in verse 16. So, why is that in this passage? Well, we, during times of intense suffering, can be tempted to be sexually immoral, and to be unholy. Notice that the word unholy connects to the strive for war holiness. Okay? We can be tempted during times of intense suffering to sin in these ways. Now, does the Old Testament say that Esau was sexually immoral? Uh, it doesn't. It, it implies it in one place where it says that Esau was married to two Hittite women. Uh, in Jewish uh, literature that's not in the Bible, uh, there are places that refer to him as sexually immoral. Uh, so that, I think, is probably what this means. Um, some make a good case that it could be symbolic of idolatry. Regardless, the main idea here is that Esau was unholy for a specific reason. And you see that in the rest of verses 16 and 17. The reason is that he unwisely disregarded his inheritance merely to gratify his hunger with a meal. And when Esau's brother Jacob tricked their father Isaac into blessing him, Esau sought the blessing with tears, but to no avail. And you can read that story in Genesis 27. Now one commentator summarizes here that the author of Hebrews wishes to drive home the point that only tears 
and rejection await those who sell out the inheritance that God promises his children. So run the race with endurance by striving for peace and holiness. Warning, don't fail the grace of God. Warning, warning, warning. Watch out these three ways. That, that's how verses uh, 14 to 17 work. Now let's just wrap this all up as we conclude. In the midst of hardships of all sorts, ranging from the most severe to the, the less severe, hardships of all sorts, this text exhorts us to run the race with endurance. Run the race with endurance by considering Jesus. Run the race with endurance by submitting to your Heavenly Father's loving discipline. And run the race with endurance by striving for peace and holiness while alert about sin. That is God's exhortation to you from Hebrews, 3, Hebrews 12, 3 to 17. Now let's pray and then we'll close. Our Father, thank you for the cross. As we look to Jesus in the midst of our suffering, Please use that to stir us up to endure. Please help us to view the difficult situations in our life as ordained by you for our good. And please give us grace to strive for peace with all people and for the holiness without which no one will ever see you. And we pray this in desperate need of your grace and with gratefulness for all you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.